There's a new book out by Stephen Kinzer. Mr. Kinzer is a man who knows something about intelligence agencies. He uh, previously wrote a book titled All the Shah's Men, which tells the fascinating story of how it was the CIA overthrew the legitimately elected government of the state of Iran to put a king on the throne because it served American interests to do so. Well, American and British interests. The British at first kind of bamboozled us into getting involved. But then the CIA lustily took on the challenge. There's a new book out titled Prisoner-in-Chief, Sidney Gottlieb and the CIA Search for Mind Control. If you've never heard of MK Ultra, dear listener, you should check it out. With a little bit of research, we're sure you'll come out ahead of Adam Gopnik, who seems very confused by the book, writing in The New Yorker. Gopnik himself posed the question, how intelligent is national intelligence? We hope people continue, you know, probing that area. But uh, there's a tie-in to this, um, this piece about Stanley Gottlieb. Actually, first let me read the, what the New York Times had to say about the book. Sharon Weinberg... Sharon Weinberger, writing in the Times, said Gottlieb in previous books on MKUltra has been treated as a footnote. But the Bronx-born chemist hired by the CIA in 1951 played a seminal role in shaping the agency. He was tasked with developing poisons for assassinations and devising mind control techniques. And the second mission empowered him to conduct experiments on prison inmates here and enemy suspects overseas. If only that's where he stopped. The captives, noted the Times, were subjected to shock treatments and drug dosages robust enough to potentially erase their egos. And if some people died, well, they died. Stanley Gottlieb saw particular promise in LSD. At one point, he created a CIA-funded brothel to determine how the combination of LSD and sex affected users' willingness to divulge secrets. At least one of those facilities, complete with one-way mirrors, uh, was next to the residence of a previous Radio Parallax guest, Peter Buxton. We had a great talk with Peter many years ago about the fact that he was the whistleblower that brought before the public the injustice that was inherent in the Tuskegee study where black men were allowed to have their syphilis go untreated to see what effects that would have. One of these brothels where you know, LSD dosed people were brought back to have sex and then be watched, you know, was right across the street from him. And you know, Mr. Miller, we probably had a Peter Buxton come back on the show and tell what he knows about that. Make a note of that. Anyway, the efforts to use mind control on a massive basis, uh, well, it didn't quite pan out with LSD and some of the drugs they were experimenting with, but uh, I, I think it's fair to say that psyops are still with us as a means of influencing public opinion. There's, there's a division of propaganda in the Pentagon. I mean, if you can achieve your military ends by bamboozling the public, well, that's, that's, a, that's a pretty cheap way to go about things. Mr. Millen informs me that uh, Fresh Air's Terry Gross interviewed Mr. Kinzer recently. I'm sure that was a barn burner, and I, I'd better check it out. Maybe, maybe we'd all better check that one out. And something else is probably our duty to check out would be something we postponed from several shows back. And that would be the obituary of the late David Koch. It should be noted, in looking back on the life of David Koch, points out the New York Times, that 
He was born in Wichita, Kansas. He grew up under the discipline of an emotionally distant father who taught his four sons to compete mercilessly with one another. The elder Koch made millions of dollars back in the 1920s and 1930s. How did he do that? Well, he built oil refineries for the Soviet Union and for Nazi Germany. Nice. If you stop and think about it, and and you probably should, you have to ask, how long could World War II have gone on if the Nazis had run out of oil because they didn't have any high-quality oil refineries? There are some who think that the world is run by an elite, which is, you know, above the rule of of any nation. And uh, when you read stories like that, you just have to think there's something to it. We have talked in past shows about how it was that certain multinational corporations during World War II divided themselves. Part of the uh, corporation, you know, became American enterprises, and part of the corporation became enterprises in Nazi Germany. And when the war was over, they reunited the parts. It doesn't seem possible to imagine that General Motors sued the United States government for bombing its property in Germany for which they sought compensation. Oh, and for which they received compensation. It doesn't seem possible that could have happened, but hey, look it up. Anyway, the Elder Koch co-founded the John Birch Society in the 1950s and passed along his deep suspicion of government to his children. Well, (laughs) again, you have to stop and say, well, which government are we talking about? When the Nazis and the Bolsheviks were writing him big checks, he didn't seem to mind interacting with them. Now, did he? At any rate, after his father's death, David Koch inherited $300 million and a significant stake in Koch Industries noted the Washington Post. By the end of his life, his fortune had grown to $50 billion. While the reclusive Charles took over running the family business from Wichita, the gregarious David moved to New York City and embraced the Manhattan social scene. David Koch poured $1.3 billion into philanthropy, lending his name to museums and theaters frequented by people who deplored him. The contrast apparently amused him. At the opening of a cancer research facility in MIT in 2011, he said, I read stuff about me and I say, God, I'm a terrible guy. Then I come here and everybody treats me like I'm a wonderful fellow. And I say, well, maybe I'm not so bad after all. Uh, The Kochs had a rather libertarian bent uh, in in previous decades. Uh, David Koch ran for vice president on the Libertarian Party ticket in 1980. And I'm ashamed to say I, I think I voted for him. Well, I voted for Ed Clark at the top of the ticket, but good God, I guess I voted for David Koch too. Oh, shame on me. But then again, looking back to 1980, the choice was Ronald Reagan, Jimmy Carter, John Anderson, or Ed Clark, or other. What are you going to do? Anyway, after his failure to be a libertarian in, in 1980, Koch switched to the Republican Party, said the Wall Street Journal. Unshackled by the Supreme Court's Citizen United decision, which loosened limits on political spending, Koch became a mega-donor to conservative causes. He was liberal on issues like abortion and same-sex marriage, but he funded a conservative revival and helped give birth to the Tea Party. Critics accused him of buying influence, but Koch insisted his main motivation was a sense of moral obligation. Yes, it was apparently through a moral obligation that Koch, whose wealth comes from a petroleum and chemicals empire, to fund climate change denial, which we know from the top of the show, apparently 15% of Americans now embrace. 
Writing about this change of heart by David Koch, The Economist noted that as the vice presidential candidate for the Libertarians in 1980, Koch's ticket attracted only 1% of the vote. Yet the brothers lobbying against regulation, unions, and entitlements in almost any circumstance, a position so extreme that William F. Buckley derided it as anarcho-totalitarianism, helped push the Republican Party much further to right than most of its supporters knew or wanted to go. On climate change in particular, this effort was underhanded. While acknowledging the reality of global warming, the brothers, both MIT graduates, funded lobbyists, junk scientists, and conspiracy theorists to propagate an alternative reality in which climate change is always contestable and any policy response to it is a socialist power grab. A new book on the Brothers, Operations by Christopher Leonard, suggests this disinformation campaign began as early as 1991 in a successful bid to prevent George H.W. Bush fulfilling his pledge to curb carbon emissions. Thereby, the Brothers helped corrupt the American right, mislead the public, and, most importantly, destroy a healthy bipartisan consensus on the issue. But it gets worse, notes The Economist, Mr. Koch's obituarists have tended to stress either the good or bad he did according to their politics. The settled view of Andrew Carnegie, that his philanthropy was great and his business practices unconscionable, suggests history's judgment will be more clear-eyed. No amount of charity can negate the damage the brothers have done to America's trust in expert opinion, as well as the environment. That's the truly evil part of what the Cokes have been up to. They have spared no expense to convince the public that, well, scientists just don't know things that, that, in fact, they do know. Well, he may be dead, but the work he started will continue, and we're going to continue to uh, talk about it and do what we can to present some contrary viewpoints, shall we say. As we record this program today, the... Newspaper, yes, I still like to read newspapers, notes that tomorrow might set the heat record for the Bay Area. And over in the Hawaiian Islands, they're apparently experiencing a new episode of coral bleaching. Four years ago in 2015, some very warm water killed off a lot of the coral. It, uh, to a large degree, has recovered. But at this point, there is concern that the warm water may stick around longer and do even more damage. You know, over the summer, while we were not... uh, not broadcasting. A couple of other famous businessmen passed away. Lee Iacocca, the master salesman who supposedly saved Chrysler. Iacocca made a name for himself at Ford when he he came up with the best-selling Mustang. You know, the Mustang has always puzzled me. To this day, it is still considered an iconic American car, and yet performance-wise, it was a dog. And I certainly don't think its looks were anything special, but hey, apparently a lot of people disagreed. I did appreciate the rumor that circulated about 20 years ago that Iacocca had bought uh, the Coca-Cola company and was going to rename it Iacocca-Cola. But, of course, it wasn't true. Ross Perot also passed away this summer, and that's a guy we should devote some time to, but, but not today. Perot's run for the presidency in 1992 and again in 1996 were very interesting interludes in American politics. People were tired then, as I assume they're even more tired now of the two-party system, and were desperate for a fresh face, even if that fresh face was that of the crusty Ross Perot. 
1992, Ross Perot's 19% of the vote for president is the highest showing for an independent in the last 80 years. But because of our goofy electoral college system, he gathered not a single electoral vote. In 1968, George Wallace, with a smaller percentage, managed to carry the electoral votes of five southern states. And since we appear to be in an obituary mode, we cannot resist mentioning the passing of a legendary actor, Rip Torn. His obituaries noted that Rip Torn was a handful. <laughs> the actor had a knack for stealing whatever scene he was in, most famously as the Pitbull producer Artie on the TV comedy The Larry Sanders Show. For my money, the greatest comedy that's ever been on TV. But they noted his crackling energy could be difficult to contain. While improvising a scene with Norman Mailer for the 1970 film Maidstone, Torn suddenly struck the novelist and director with a hammer. Of course, from what I know, I'm sure that Rip Torn wasn't the first person to contemplate hitting Norman Mailer with a hammer, but he did so. For his part, unsure whether he was acting or not, Norman Mailer fought back, biting Torn's ear in a scene that made it into the finished film, which was the 1970 film Maidstone. Torn's temper arguably cost him the role of a lifetime when he was replaced by Jack Nicholson in 1969's Easy Rider after a vicious argument with director Dennis Hopper. Both men claimed that the other pulled a knife on them. Torn said, A producer once told me that I didn't work more often because of my temperament. But that's why I didn't become a banker. Speaking of banking, about seven or eight years ago, apparently a drunk, Rip Torn, somehow found his way into a bank after hours, where the police found him sleeping on a couch. They were quite certain that robbery was not his intent, so apparently no charges got filed. This is lucky for Rip, because apparently when they found him in the bank, he did have a gun on him, leading to a stint in rehab. Acting, he said, helped him through his troubles. No matter how I felt, no matter what anyone said about me, Torn explained, I always had the audience. Anyway, let's go back into talking about how the public gets manipulated, because that's a subject near and dear to our hearts. Currently, the government of Iran is being blamed for having attacked the oil production facilities in Saudi Arabia. And folks like uh, Rupert Murdoch's The New York Post are beating the drums for war, saying this wasn't just an attack on Saudi Arabia. Targeting the world's oil supply is an attack on the global economy. And all the evidence points to Iran's guiding hand. U.S. military action has to be on the table. America's Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, himself a protege of the Koch brothers, is calling the attack an act of war. To his credit, well, we think it's to his credit, Donald Trump is, is not going for it. Apparently, the White House is distracted by their announcement that he may have yet another meeting with Kim Jong-un. As he notes, of course, they did fall in love. But I have to note, with all of our intelligence-gathering abilities to listen into electronic communication, to have satellites in the air looking down on, on, on things like rockets, and, and, and I would presume we have some capacity to monitor what drones and cruise missiles are doing, I think we know exactly where this attack came from. And I suspect if there was uh, really solid proof that it came from Iran, that would be on page one. So, uh, I don't know, I'm, I'm praying to God we're not going to have a, a hot war with Iran, for God's sakes. And from the scary news department, we also have this. 
writing in the New Yorker, Jonathan Franzen has pointed out that we should probably stop pretending we can stop the climate apocalypse, noting that, in his opinion, there's virtually no hope of keeping the global average temperature from rising more than 2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels, which is the target scientists say we must meet to avoid catastrophic climate change. To achieve that goal, the people of every country on Earth would have to institute draconian energy conservation measures, embrace higher taxes and energy costs, and accept severe curtailment of their familiar lifestyles. People don't like sacrifices, especially for some future common good. And Franzen said, I don't see human nature fundamentally changing anytime soon. He notes it'd be more realistic to spend our resources preparing for the disasters of fire, flooding, and famine to come. Writing in MotherJones.com, Kevin Drum said Franzen isn't quite right about giving up hope. He does have a point about human nature, but notes that the best way to fight climate change will be to invest in energy technology that, to make it cheap, plentiful, and green instead of fruitlessly pleading with people to use less. Anyway, the petrochemical industries of the world, which gave us the Koch brothers and gave us the, uh, <laughs> the regime change in Iran that put the Shah in power back in the 50s, well, they're not going to go away anytime soon. And I was intrigued by a little article they had in the business section of The Economist in their July 27th issue looking at green energy. I was quite taken by the sub-headline to the piece. Can the monopolists at the heart of America's shift to cleaner energy thrive in a new climate? The magazine noted that the opportunity is vast. Last year, Americans' power sector generated about 4.2 billion kilowatt hours of electricity and 1.8 billion tons of CO2, a third of America's total. Only 17% of a power generation is currently from renewable sources. Another 19% comes from nuclear energy. If you separated out America's energy industry and regarded it as a country, it would be the world's fourth biggest emitter, ranking between India and Russia. And of course, if we wanted to automatically regulate carbon emissions, we would find a way to tax carbon. Conservation would then take care of itself, but... Doggone it. That effort seems to be stymied everywhere you look. The Australians actually had such a policy in place. Then a conservative government took over and trashed it. And, of course, one of the great enemies of conservation and green energy is the fact that we now have cheap gas and oil in America, courtesy of fracking, where we take these geological strata that have been separated for millions, well, probably more like hundreds of millions of years, and break through them so we can then get out the natural gas, which, of course, is 20 times more effective as a greenhouse gas than CO2. And, of course, one hopes capture, capturing all of it in the process. Anyway, we've taken the position on this show in the past that we have been premature in looking the other way versus nuclear power. There are thorium reactors that do not produce fissionable material. There are lots of ways to go. And I have a sneaking suspicion that the reason we're not going that way is because it would be bad for the petrochemical industry. Just a guess on my part. Again, the article mentions 17% of power generation in America from renewables, but we're doing better than that, 19% from nuclear, in spite of the fact that uh, we're closing nuclear plants all over the place. 
Anyway, we'll continue to whinge about this subject uh, in future programs. The truth of the matter is that the battle for public opinion, well, it seems to be slanted in favor of those who spend a lot of money to influence public opinion. And as we close today's program, I want to talk about uh, what's going on now and something that happened in the past that uh, we should look at. I mentioned an article a couple weeks ago, which I did not have in my hand at the time, but I do now. It comes from the East Bay Times, from the technology section, and the headline was, Report Automation Not a Job Destroyer. The subheadline stated, Educated Bay Area Ready for Changes in Worker Roles by 2030. This piece by Leonardo Castaneda starts out noting that automation could eliminate 907,000 Bay Area jobs by 2030. That's 11 years from now. This is part of a nationwide trend that will hit particularly hard with low-skilled workers, people without college degrees, and those at the beginning and end of their careers. Here's the part I like. Despite that, according to a new report about the future of labor from the McKinsey Global Institute, job displacement driven by artificial intelligence won't lead to mass unemployment. McKinsey researchers expect the booming Bay Area to keep generating significant economic gains between now and 2030, including some of the biggest job gains in the state. Ms. Merlin asked if we're referring to humans or robots. I, I think in this case, humans. The article then goes on to pussyfoot around how this is going to take place, admitting that older workers, once laid off, have a harder time because of age discrimination. They then note that, well, if they're retrained, however, automation could be a net positive. The article does admit that um, the transition is going to be easy or painless. I'm glad they admit that. Experts warned that we need better training and education in grade school and high school, as well as college apprenticeships and mid-career to prepare workers for the changing future of work. What work? Anyway, suffice it to say that I am skeptical in the extreme as to how it is we're going to lose 900,000 jobs in the Bay Area and things are going to be just fine. And the September 27th issue of the week has a briefing titled, Will You Lose Your Job to a Robot? The subheadline notes that over the next decade, automation and artificial intelligence could throw 54 million Americans out of work. I did read a couple days ago that a couple of the tech industry giants were suggesting that this might be a good time for the government to start paying people. I don't think they're going to be paid with their tax money since they're using tax shelters in Ireland and other places to, uh, to avoid the tax man. But, you know, the government should do this. Anyway, the first question in the briefing was, why is automation a threat? And the answer is, rapid technological advances are enabling machines to perform a growing number of tasks traditionally done by humans. Law firms now use artificial intelligence, AI, sophisticated computer programs that can learn from experience to conduct contract analysis, hunt for client conflicts, and even craft litigation strategy. Because clearly the McDonald's Corporation is losing vast fortunes on what it pays their employees, right? Walmart is automating trucks. California farms are employing robots to harvest lettuce. From 1990 to 2007, robots replaced about 670,000 U.S. jobs, mostly in manufacturing. 
That trend will accelerate over the next decade as advances in mobile technology, AI, data transfer, and computing speeds allow robots to act with greater independence. Oxford University concluded in a major 2013 study that 47% of American jobs are at high risk of automation within two decades. There are people that say, oh, come on, we've heard this before and things are turned out fine. In the 19th century, farmers rendered obsolete by mechanized agriculture found their way to new, better paying jobs in factories, or so they say. When industrial automation in the 20th century threatened factory workers, many of the displaced transitioned to service work, admittedly often with lower salaries. And if history is any guide, said one optimist in a study, we could also expect that 8 to 9% of 2030 labor demand will be in new types of occupations that have not existed before. Yes, dear listener, I hope you can envision yourself in the year 2030 with your oil can, working on the joints of the robots that have taken your job. So in answer to the question, will the impact be modest? The answer came back, not necessarily. The futurist Martin Ford acknowledged the long record of false alarms, but argues that this time it's different. The pace of automation is no longer linear, but exponential, like the growth in computing capacity predicted by Moore's Law. The economy, Ford says, will not have time to create new professions to absorb the tens of millions of workers displaced by automation. By some estimates, America is now less than a decade away from autonomous vehicles, and yet 3.5 million Americans still work as truck drivers. Oh, here's the piece at the end of the article. It notes that the Democratic presidential candidate, Andrew Yang, warns of an automation buzzsaw that will eliminate millions of jobs and lead to a political polarization, suicides, drug overdoses, anxiety, depression, as well as derelict buildings, jobless zones, and a hyper-stratified society like something out of The Hunger Games. Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg countered with, well, he makes it sound like that's a bad thing. Not really, but actually Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg say they believe it will be necessary for government to provide a universal basic income to each citizen. God, what was that, that Bolshevik slogan? Bread, peace, land. Yeah, they talked about the universally meeting the needs of, uh, of each citizen as well, didn't they? Didn't work out. Anyway, we're out of time, and I have not had time to visit that episode from the 1930s I wanted to go through. The way I see it, we're currently getting certain aspects of technology rammed down our throats by corporations that do not have our best interests at heart. They have their best interests at heart. So I thought I'd talk about the collusion back in the late 1930s between Standard Oil, Firestone, and General Motors to change how we did things in this country in favor of using their technologies, GM cars, Standard Oil gasoline, and Firestone tires. I see parallels to us being offered up a robot workforce whether we like it or not. This program was produced by Edward McMillan, who to date has not been replaced by an AI-driven robot, but we're looking around. You have been listening to Radio parallax i'm your faithful host douglas everett who to date also is not wait wait just a sec attention radio parallax listeners this program may undergo major changes in the near future we assure you they will be for the better we invite you to tune in again next week thank you i said the humans are dead i'm glad 
they are dead. The humans are dead. I noticed they're dead. We used poisonous gases. With traces of lead. And we poisoned their asses. Actually, they're not. Solo.